Hi, this is Steve Nerlick. Why, 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 why cheap astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, episode 111, Practicalities. So sure, it's great to be visionary and to speculate on our future, but occasionally it's important to stop and take a deep breath to consider which parts of that visionary picture are really going to work. Dear Cheap Astronomy, is in-situ resource utilisation really worth the trouble? Here at Cheap Astronomy, we do tend to say disparaging things about in-situ resource utilisation. But that's usually in response to suggestions that if we want to land on Mars, all we have to do is to make rocket fuel there so we can take off again. While this is ostensibly true, a substantial amount of infrastructure would be needed to both source and then refine the ingredients to make that fuel, and you'd probably want to experiment with a few different methods, have a few trial runs, and expect a few false starts before you'd want to put people on your launch vehicle. It's also the case that if you plan to electrolyze water into hydrogen and oxygen, you'll then need to cool those gases down into their denser liquid phase to be able to use them as fuel. So there's a whole separate set of cryogenic storage issues to deal with there. All this activity might become cost-effective once you have a booming space economy with landing and launches every other day, but at this point in history, it's vastly easier just to fly and land a tank of hypergolic launch fuel, so it's sitting there waiting when the astronauts arrive. It would be hypergolic fuel because of its long shelf life, plus there's no fussing about with cryogenics. Nonetheless, there is a real opportunity for in-situ resource utilisation within that scenario. Any opportunity to establish fuel depots that separates your fuel from your spacecraft is a good opportunity. To date, most space missions have involved taking all the fuel with you, and hence travelling with all the burden of the rocket equation, where you have to burn fuel just to carry the fuel that you'll need later on. It would be ideal if you could instead position refuelling depots at various spots along the journey, which means your spacecraft could fly faster because its mass would be lower. You might, for example, keep fuel depots in orbit around the Moon and Mars and keep them stocked with fuel using large, slow-moving tankers. But in the longer term, there's a real business opportunity to keep them stocked with fuel that's made from in-situ resources. As we've discussed before on this podcast, living on Mars doesn't have a lot going for it. On the moon, at least the skies are clear, and it's only three days to get home. But on the much more distant Mars, there's always an orange haze everywhere, and there's only so many red rocks you can look at. But if you've got a lucrative business going, then a three to six month stint on the red planet might not be so bad, and there'd be reasons for your employer to make the habitation pleasing and attractive, and that might then bring in a few tourists who have yet to realise there's only so many red rocks you can look at. The key in-situ resource for making rocket fuel is water, which gives you the hydrogen, as well as oxygen, 
And of course, once you have a reason to host people on another celestial body, water is a great in situ resource to keep those people alive, not to mention some oxygen and food producing plants, which also thrive on that other great in situ resource, sunlight. You can also use in situ resources to accommodate your workers and your tourists and your plants, perhaps initially just piling up regolith over prefabricated structures for radiation shielding, but later on maybe fabricating things from scratch using bricks and mortar from the local rocks and regolith, and eventually you could go real high-tech by 3D printing a regolith-derived paste that sets hard into whatever shape you choose to print. You can also extract silicon and aluminium to make glass windows in their frames and to make solar panels. At this point in history, these are all just theoretical ideas which remain to be properly feasibility tested, but they are certainly worth pursuing. However, there is at least one area that's achieved more than just talk. MOXIE, the Mars Oxygen in Situ Resource Utilization Experiment, which is apparently an acronym with a silent S, R and U, is on board the Perseverance Mars rover. Since landing in February 2021, MOXIE has been run successfully seven times now, each time producing six grams of O2 within an hour, which is about what you'd expect from a small tree on Earth. So, that's one small step for an electrolytic conversion unit, one giant leap for robot kind. This is the middle bit. A lot of stuff gets talked up in popular science media, but a lot of it is totally untested and unlikely to be implementable without a lot of infrastructure being established first. And of course, to do that, you'll first have to convince people to invest a lot of money up front, and to do that, what you really need is a space economy. Dear Cheap Astronomy, what exactly is the space economy? The space economy is defined by the OECD as the full range of activities that create value and benefits to human beings in the course of exploring, researching, understanding, managing and utilising space. As we previously discussed, exploring, researching and understanding space are important activities, but if we are really going to move forward, we need to do more of the managing and utilising stuff. It's said that the space industry is now worth over $400 billion, which was the amount of revenue generated in 2020, although that includes revenue from government investment. So it's not a measure of profit, but it is money that pays salaries and builds infrastructure so it is a good reflection of the industry's benefit to the world at large. Some of the revenue that does look like genuine profit comes from satellites, mostly broadcast TV satellites, but satellites providing internet services are a growing part of the picture. I mean, OK, this is a science podcast, we're just making the point that it's great to invest money in things and to employ people, but if you're not also doing something that makes money, 
then you don't really have a sustainable economy. Space economy enthusiasts talk about space for Earth and space for space activities, where space to Earth activities are things like broadcast TV and internet satellites, as well as weather and GPS satellites, while space for space activities are about finding new economic opportunities out there. For example, asteroid mining and also space tourism. In the case of space for Earth activities, most of the upfront investments made in the late 20th century is now paying off big time. But with space for space activities, we are still in the upfront investment phase. With any realisation of that investment, looking as far away as GPS satellites looked back when Sputnik 1 first orbited the Earth. Nonetheless, the gap between Sputnik and GPS satellites was less than 50 years. But while that sounds good, it's also been 50 years since anyone's been back to the moon. Apparently, footprints, flags and science experiments just aren't enough to inspire progress. Instead, it seems political rivalry and FOMO, the fear of missing out, are much better drivers of progress. So the moment someone said they were going back to the moon, then everyone else wanted to as well. Hopefully this time around, someone is going to build a base, because then everyone else will want to build a base. And after governments have broken the ice, then private enterprise might follow suit if there is a buck to be made. But to encourage private investments in space-for-space -space activities, we first need to establish a set of rules. The Outer Space Treaty, signed in 1967, was, and is great, in many ways, by banning the use of space for military purposes and blocking governments from claiming sovereignty over a celestial body like the Moon. But at the same time, blocking anyone from ownership of anything becomes a disincentive to exploring and prospecting, since if you do find something but can't stake a claim, then someone else can just move in and grab whatever you found. The more recent Artemis Accords have tried to modify some of the feel-good spaces for everyone stuff by stating that the extraction and utilisation of space resources should be conducted in a manner that complies with the Outer Space Treaty but does not inherently represent national appropriation. In other words, as long as you're not a government, you can stake a claim. The Artemis Accords haven't been signed by Russia or China, nor India, although apparently India is thinking about it. Critics of the Accord argue it's just an extension of American capitalism. But an alternate view is that a free market is never really a free market. You actually want governments to play a role by creating a set of rules and regulations that private interests can then operate in without any further interference from government. So, space could become an almost free market with just a bit of regulatory restraint and a general hope that most people will do the right thing. But while people may often do the right thing, you'll still need courts to rule on things that look a bit dodgy 
And eventually you'll need space police to deal with things that are clearly dodgy. And then of course someone will need to sell coffee and donuts. And before you know it, you'll have yourself a space economy that really is in space. Here's hoping. This is the end bit. So, there you go. All sorts of things may be possible, but they're not likely to happen unless someone pays for them. Right now, that someone is mostly governments. But there is a growing trend for governments to fund private enterprise endeavours, which does grow opportunities for non-government investment. Whether all that results in the establishment of a cryogenic plant on Mars to enable rocket refuelling remains to be seen. Not to mention those planet-scale pipelines that will bring water from the poles. Nonetheless, all sorts of things are possible. But that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question, or you just want to do six impossible things before breakfast, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and we'll try to make it all sound plausible. Thanks for listening. Steve Nerlich, Cheap Astronomy.